As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible and open it up to Romans chapter 11 today, Romans chapter 11, I did get a word during that last song that uh, for those of you that can't attend the training today, the uh, $15 registration fee is covered, so, uh, so it's now a free training for you to come today and be a part of that. Also, just one little bit of housekeeping. I appreciate uh, some of y'all's prayers throughout the course of the week. Last Sunday after I finished preaching, I got word that my dad had had an episode while he was preaching over in Fort Worth and was rushed to the hospital, and he was going by ambulance at that time. And so he was in the hospital for about three days this week, but I praise the Lord he didn't have any strokes. In fact, it seems as though what, what occurred was related to his stomach and that it's very treatable, but I appreciate you guys praying for my dad. He's been a pastor for almost 60 years, most decent man I've ever known. So if you'll continue praying for his healing. We're in this series that we're calling Above the Line. It's an important series for us because we're looking at our disciple strategy, discipleship strategy, and specifically what we desire to see happen in the lives of people that are connected with our church. And so you'll see this logo here on the screen, and there's six parts of the logo that I want you to be familiar with. In fact, I hope that if you're a regular here, that you could see this logo in the months to come, and you could explain our discipleship ministry, to our discipleship strategy, I should say, to anybody that you come in contact with. So notice, first of all, in the center is our church logo. That represents you. It represents me. The church is not a building. The church is the people. So there we are in the center, and we are balanced on this line. That's the second part of the logo. And that line represents the division, if you will, between the temporary and the eternal. The division between the life that we live here on earth and our Heavenly Father up in heaven. And then you'll see WGSL. That stands for Worship, Grow, Serve, Live. You see, for you and I to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we have to learn to go above the line. If we're always focused on those things that are of the here and now, we will struggle to grow spiritually. And so we desire for you to go above the line and be a worshiper. Worship has to do with alignment so that every area of your life comes into alignment with the will of God and seeks to bring glory to the name of God. We want you to be a worshiper, but we're also wanting you to go above the line and grow. We have a commitment here to the Word of God, to the Bible. We want everything that we do to be biblical. It's why whenever I preach, I begin my sermons with open your Bibles too, because there is a fundamental difference in the way that the Christian sees the world and the way that a secular person sees the world. You see, if you're a non-Christian, then you desire a life of joy and happiness and love as well, but you're told that the way that you find that is by looking within. If you'll look within and find the light within you and follow that light and really find out who you are and what you believe, then that will lead you to the life that you've always wanted, the life that you dream about. As Christians, we say, no, the answer is not to look within, the answer is to look above. 
as a worshiper, you're seeking the fact, you're, you're, you're committing yourself to the fact that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God has created you, you are not an accident, and you want your life to be in alignment with His desire in heaven. And then when it comes to growth, you want your understanding of the world and your understanding of truth to be in alignment with what the Word of God has said. You see, we believe that there's such a thing as transcendent truth, truth that comes from God, and truth that has been revealed to us within His Word. And so we go above the line to discover what has God said on the matter? What has God said about family? What has God said about life? What has God said about human sexuality, about society, about the way that I should live my life and the morals and ethics that I should employ within my life? And we seek to grow through the knowledge of the Word of God, but we also want you to grow in relationships with other people so that we are not a church where you come in and you sit in the pew spa and then you go home and you come back again and do it the next week. We are a church where we are a family, where we are in this together, where we are caring for one another and serving one another and trying to help one another grow. Well, obviously, we live in the real world. Obviously, you can't just always have your mind set on things above. You also have to live day-to-day life. And so there's two things in day-to-day life below the line that we really desire to see in your life. Number one, We desire you to be a person of service, to find some area or areas in your life where you can connect yourself to other people, where you learn to love other people and go beyond yourself to reach out. Because the secret to receiving love is to give love. And as you learn to give love, you begin to see that God feeds you and the love of other people feeds you and you're connected and you're living the life that you were created to live, which is not a life of selfishness, but is a life in which you are giving of yourself in service to others and in service to God. And then that leads you to L. I believe that a Christian's life ought to be contagious. It ought to be contagious in the sense that We're sharing the gospel, but we're also living it out. You see, uh, your life ought to have laughter. Your life ought to have joy, purpose, meaning, connectivity. As Christians, we have been touched by grace. As Christians, we have forgiveness for our past and purpose for our present and hope for our future and hope that lasts for all eternity. And that ought to be reflected in how we live life, how we care for one another, the disposition on our face. And so we want to see you living a life that has joy and purpose and meaning, living the life that you were created to live. So today, here's my assignment. I want to zero in on the W. What does it mean to be a disciple who worships God? And if you'll look with me to Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, just three verses today, it is a a hymn of praise right in the middle of one of the most theologically meaty passages in the entire Bible. And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. Oh, the depth of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to Him? It shall be recompensed unto Him and it shall be recompensed unto Him again. Now for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. If you were to get in your car and go down to the Christian bookstore and ask them to show you the worship section, where do you think they will probably lead you? They'll probably lead you to the music section. And music indeed is a part of worship. Yet in Christianity today, we have often made it synonymous with worship, and worship is actually much larger than just singing songs or lifting up music to God. I think of all the different subjects in Christianity, one of the most misunderstood subjects is what does it mean to worship God? Let me quickly talk to you about four misunderstandings when it comes to worship. The first is what we referred to a moment ago, that music is worship. Now, don't hear me as slamming worship in any way. The Bible speaks, or slamming music in any way. The Bible speaks a lot about music. In fact, the book of Psalms is an ancient hymn book, and it's in our Holy Scripture. The reason why we sing whenever we gather for worship is because it's biblical. The Bible teaches us that we should come together and sing praises unto our Lord. That's why whenever you gather with God's people, this should not be your posture during the music time. You should be singing during the music time. You say, well, I don't like my singing voice. Well, no one can hear you anyway. Just sing, okay? It'll be okay. And sing praises to the Lord. It's biblical because music is a language of the soul. Music allows us to speak from our emotive center, and music allows us to express ourselves to God. It connects our emotions to a moment. That's why music can be such a a powerful part of life. You uh, may have in your your marriage, you, you and your spouse may have your song, right? And, and that was the song that you started listening to when you first fell in love. And so every time you hear the song, Total Eclipse of the Heart, it just reminds you of, of whenever you were falling in love and it connects you to those emotions. Why? Because music is a gift from God that connects us to our soul. And worship should include music, but music in and of itself is not worship. In fact, there's a lot of music that's not really worship to God. I mean, have you ever heard Lash and the Pallbearers sing? I mean, that's a long way from worship, you know? And so there's a lot of music out there that, that really isn't, isn't worship, and worship is more than just singing. Here's a second misunderstanding. The idea that emotion is worship. Now, as I look back over my spiritual journey, I, I will admit that a lot of my big moments in my Christian life have been accompanied by emotion, perhaps even tears. Uh, There are certain songs that whenever I hear it, it stirs me up. Every time I hear the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it just does something to me, and I'm not far from crying. There's no need in your worship to be Mr. Spock. Okay, You don't have to be emotionless. In fact, I think we in the Baptist tradition could probably use a little bit more enthusiasm sometimes, okay? But at the same time, just because you cry, shout, lift your hands, kneel at the altar, hug a person next to you, speak in an unknown language, get mad at sin, or dance like David, that doesn't mean that you're worshiping. 
You may just be at a football game, okay? Just because you get emotional doesn't mean that you have worshipped. Worship's more than emotion. Uh, Knowledge is worship is another misunderstanding. There's this concept that the more Christian books that I read, the more blogs that I comment upon, the more tweets that I send, the, the deeper my theology so that I can converse with people in the deep streams of theology, then the more that I am demonstrating, the more I am demonstrating worship. Yet it is possible for your mind to be full and your soul to be empty. Knowledge is good, but in and of itself, it's not worship. Tradition is worship. And I'm thankful for our heritage in Christianity, and this is just my opinion, but I really believe over the last 30 years in American Christianity, we have made a huge mistake by ignoring our heritage. Now, a lot of it has been in the name of trying to reach out to people with the gospel, and I understand that and I get that. Yet at the same time, we have 2,000 years of heritage as Christians going back to the resurrection that anchors us in something that is eternal in its truth. And it's a mistake to ignore our heritage. But just because you're sitting in a traditional building, singing traditional hymns, or listening to a traditional sermon, following a traditional liturgy, doesn't mean that you're worshiping. You say, okay, Lash, get to the point. What is worship? Zero in on verse 36. This is one of the greatest definitions of worship, one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. The Scripture says, For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice several things about what worship is. First of all, a worshiper recognizes that all things are of God, for of Him are all things. What this means is that a worshiper understands and believes that life and creation are not an accident. That there is a God and that that God has created and he has created with intentionality. This is one of the dividing lines between Christian thought and secular thought because ultimately in secular godless thought Life generates itself through uh, scientific reactions, through, 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 through biological realities, those kind of things. But, but there is no creator. There is no ultimate designer behind it. As Christians, we believe that there is a creator, that there is a designer, and that he has created life on purpose, and he has infused it with meaning. And because all things are of God, that means that your life is not an accident. Your life has meaning. The Creator designed you. He knit you together in your mother's wombs, in your mother's womb. Uh, He has given you gifts. He has given you experiences. He has written your life story to be a part of His story. Your life is not a random act of chance. Your life has meaning and purpose and has been given to you as a gift to be cherished and to be lived by Almighty God. And because there is a creator, there are also things that are truth. There are what I call transcendent truths that go beyond my opinion. 
You see, I can generate truth for myself and I can generate opinions of what I think are right and wrong. But if there is a creator who established life and created me and created you and created this life on purpose with intentionality and meaning, that creator has also established that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And that goes beyond my opinion. It goes beyond just me or just my culture. These are transcendent truths that are true for all people in all places at all times. And so we believe that the Creator has established certain things as truth, like uh, gender and sexuality and family and the value of life. And these things, which were part of the creation story, were created with a purpose in mind. So as a worshiper, we go above the line and we align our thoughts with God's truth. As a worshiper, we go above the line and we align our gratitude with God's blessings. So we become thankful for the blessings that God has brought to us. Whenever you begin realizing that all things are of God, then giving to God becomes a no-brainer. Whenever you begin realizing that all things are of God, then serving God becomes a no-brainer. Because I realize this, everything that I am, everything that I have, comes from God. And if all things are of God, I could never outgive what God has given. And so when I give back in the offering, when I give back of my time, I mean, I'm a cheerful giver because I could never outgive my God. And all things are of Him. A worshiper understands that all things are through Him. All things are through Him. If you go back to verse 33, you see these words, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now try to imagine the imagery there, the depth of riches, and in those holes are wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor. In the internet age in which we live, there's just so much information that comes our way. And for a lot of us, we become information junkies. Because if you want to know something, it's just, it's just right there. You know, um, uh, what time are the Texas A&M Aggies playing football today? I'm not asking you, I'm asking Siri right here. <laughs> But, but Siri just gave it to me, 6.30 tonight, uh, they're playing UCLA. I appreciate your help back there. <laughs> now, 15 years ago, if I were sitting in my living room and my friend back there wasn't there to help me, then, then what would I have to do? I'd go to TV Guide and look it up and, you know, it'd take me 20, 30 minutes to find it. But now we just have information at our fingertips, all sorts of information. Now, there's lots of knowledge out there. But there's not much wisdom. The smartest people in society right now are the ones that don't just have knowledge, but they have wisdom. In other words, they're able to take what they know and all the information that they gather, and they're able to take it down to something that is wise and actually has purpose and meaning and wisdom behind it. Well, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He knows more than I do. He has wisdom that I don't have. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You see, a worshiper understands that God has more knowledge. He has more wisdom than I do. And God has plans that I know nothing about. And so I trust in him. When I worship, I leave my doubts and I leave my questions below the line. And I go above the line to the God who created me and the God who has shown himself to be a good, good father. And I place my trust in him. I place my faith in his purposes, his ways, his wisdom, his knowledge. And I trust that even though I can't, I can't see everything, he can. And I'm going to trust in him. I don't know why it didn't work out. I don't know why they behaved the way they did. I don't know why they hurt you. I don't know why she couldn't have lived longer. She died whenever my mom was only two years of age. I didn't get to meet her. I understand that she was an extraordinary young woman. I don't understand why my grandmother didn't get to live longer. I don't know why life goes the way it does sometimes. But I do know this, that all things work together for good to them who love God, who are called according to his purposes. I don't know, but I know. There's a lot of things I don't know in this world. But I do know that God is good. And I do know that God is sovereign. And whenever I have those questions and doubts, my mind must go above the line and place my faith not in myself and not in my finite knowledge, but place my mind in the one from whom all things go through, the God who is in control. That's worship. Trusting God when I don't even know the answers. A worshiper understands that all things are to God. Look at verse 36 again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. So the loop is that just as all things are from God, are of God, all things ultimately are to God. Those things that are temporary, that come and go, all things are ultimately to God. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, from dust I came and from dust I shall return. If you are a secular person, a non-Christian, a non-worshipper, then the idea of death is terrifying because it's the end of all. In fact, some philosophers will tell you within that stream of thinking, just don't think about it. Don't think about it. Just think about the here and now. If this is all you have, then the end of all you have must be avoided at all costs. But a worshiper realizes that a lot of things are temporary and few things are eternal. But life is eternal. God is eternal. And a worshiper is able to focus on those things that are eternal, which then empowers you to live in the world which is temporal. A worshiper understands that all things have a season. Solomon also wrote in Ecclesiastes, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal. 
A time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The Beatles didn't write that. That came from Scripture. They say, all good things must come to an end, but a worshiper understands that in Christ, the end is just the beginning. And because of that, because of that hope, it leads you to worship. So what this leads us to is alignment. The way that I spelled it in the sermon today is A dot dot alignment. Above the alignment. Going above the line and setting your mind on those things which are above. And realizing that it is of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And then look at the last part of the verse. To Him be glory forever. To Him be glory forever. You see, a worshiper brings all things into alignment with the glory of God. A worshiper does not live for my glory, for earthly glory. A worshiper lives for God's glory. It's not about puffing up me. It's about making much of God. So a worshiper doesn't have to wear many hats. A worshiper doesn't have to departmentalize your life. A worshiper has one goal that cuts through all of life. I feel sorry for moms these days because in, in the information age, the expectations on mothers are just so unbelievable. You're supposed to be involved at school. You're supposed to be super mom and be involved in the community, involved at church, and you're supposed to uh, have a career and do this and that and this and this, and there's just all this expectations if you don't do all these things and you're just not a good mom. And I find that just mom guilt is just rising to uh, flood levels. And it's really hard not to live our life departmentalized where, okay, this is who I am at work and this is who I am at church and this is who I am in the family. A worshiper doesn't have to wear all those hats. A worshiper can just wear one hat. I want to bring glory to God in all things. Now, don't take that to mean that you don't have to show up to work tomorrow. Well, a lot of you don't because it's Labor Day, but (laughs) you still got to go to work and you still have to pay bills. And I get that. I understand that. But there's one hat that you wear. I'm a worshiper. I want to treat people and work as unto the Lord. I want to bring an attitude that worships God. I don't want people to be seeing my life and puffing me up in fame. I I want people to be seeing Jesus and puffing Him up in fame. I want people to know my Lord because all things are of Him and through Him and to Him. And I'm a worshiper. My life is aligned so that I'm seeking to just bring Him glory in everything that I do, in everything that I am. I'm a worshiper. And that's my prayer for you today. That you'll go above the line and you'll be a true worshiper of Almighty God. You know, the first step of worship is to bow the knee, confess your sin, and place your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That moment of conversion, that moment of salvation, when you believe in Christ, trusting Him as Savior, And if there's never been that time in your life, 
I pray that today will be your moment where you place your faith in Christ. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads right where you are? The band's going to come and lead us in worship. I do want to ask, is this your moment of salvation? Is today the day that you place faith in Christ as Lord and Savior? And if this is your moment, right where you are, would you just call out to God? There's no magical formula for you to utter, but it's a matter of the heart calling out to God. And you may say something like, Heavenly Father, I have sinned. And I come before you asking forgiveness. And I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I am bowing my life before the cross of Jesus. He is my Lord and my Savior. And I ask today that you will save me. Change me from the inside out. So that my life can be in alignment with your glory that I may know you and serve you in every area of my life. And so, Lord, today I mark this moment as my day of salvation when I kneel before the cross and trust in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. If you prayed your prayer of salvation today, I, I would like to know. I'm here at the front. And I would just invite you during this next song to come and see me and say, Hey, Pastor, today I became a believer. I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you and be a pastor to you. Today's your day of salvation. Will you come see me? Let me know that this happened in your life today.